Hey everybody, and welcome to the ninth episode of SFD. This intro is the first thing I write when I'm typing the script, and it's the first thing I record, too. So I don't know how long the eventual end product will be, either in minutes or pages, but I'm pretty sure I did it again. I wanted to blow through the time of the Shah so I could get to focusing on the Iranian Revolution, since that's the big event in the country's history that most Americans are at least vaguely aware of, along with the embassy hostage crisis and later Iran-Contra under Reagan. But I did it again. Honestly, I think I might just be reading too many books. Kinzer's books, three of Irvand Abrahamian's, one called Revolutionary Iran by Michael Axworthy, bits of Fannin's The Wretched of the Earth, and The Great War for Civilization by the Irish journalist Robert Fisk. And I didn't even manage to get my hands on half the books that I wanted to read this time around. Anyway, the point is I read maybe more than I really needed to to give you the basic names and dates rundown of what went on in Iran between 1953 and 1979. The reason I kept picking up more sources and reading them, though, wasn't that I needed to clear up the chronological procession of things, but that all of the historical trends that would lead to the hostage crisis and the current state of relations between the U.S. and Iran didn't just have their roots in, but actually came to a full flowering during this period. So while I've got to do a bit of the names and date stuff to give you context, I want to try over this episode, or this hopefully brief series of episodes, to focus on the larger historical trends, rather than the minutiae of individual events, and to show you how those forces have shaped not just Iran's society and place in the world, but our own as well. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been all over Mexico playing baseball, celebrating Easter way up north in the desert in Durango, and getting my rib cracked at an honest-to-God ska concert up in the Sierra of Querétaro State. And what with a wedding coming up next week, which by the time I'm recording this I already went to, and a trip home for a family reunion and a visa renewal, which I still haven't done yet, interruptions in coverage are going to be pretty constant for a while. But I can tell you that I'm still optimistic about finishing up with Iran entirely before any law school nonsense, and I'll see what I can do about keeping up with the shorter shows and the blog too. In the meantime, please, please, right now, do one of three things. Rate this show on the service that you use to listen to it. I know you hear that from every podcast you listen to, and you think, it's okay, somebody else will take care of it, but this is still a small podcast, and if you, literally you, don't rate this episode, nobody will. Nobody will. Same goes for the next two things, which are A, tell somebody about the show, but like, really tell them, with links and a follow-up and a discussion group down the line. Or B, just repost the post from the show on Facebook. This is actually the lowest commitment one right here, and maybe the one that helps me the most. Every time a show comes out, the SFD Facebook page makes a post about it. Just find that and share it. Two clicks. Or if you visit my website to listen to the shows, I realized I didn't have a social bar. Uh, I thought that was default in my WordPress scheme, but it was not. And I wasn't looking close enough at my own shows after I published them. Uh, but now I have a social bar. So as soon as you go onto that page, just click Facebook and you'll share it. Anyway, that taken care of, let's get on with it. Mossadegh's in prison, the Americans are taking over for the British in Iran, and the Shah is once again firmly seated on the Peacock throne. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? 
But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. Alright friends, so if you recall, we left off last time, just after Operation Ajax, the joint American and British effort that unseated Mohammed Mossadegh, the elected Prime Minister of Iran. Mossadegh had nationalized the Anglo-Iranian oil company, and that wasn't going to fly with the Brits. In Mossadegh's place, they installed the ambitious, but for the moment monarchist, General Zahedi, and between the two of them, the Shah and Zahedi took the country firmly in hand. Their reprisals against Mossadegh's allies were swift. The Shah outlawed the National Front, the coalition of center-left parties that had supported Mossadegh, and the Tuda, the Iranian Communist Party. But while relatively few members of the National Front were imprisoned, and even fewer killed, according to Abrahamian, quote, the crackdown on the Tuda and its affiliated organizations was much harder. The regime readily accepted the ominous principle articulated by the U.S. Embassy, that since communism was not produced by socioeconomic grievances, massive repression was the only sure way to stamp it out. The regime rounded up 1,200 party members immediately after the coup. The figure grew to nearly 2,500 in the following months, and to more than 3,000 by the middle of the next year. 31 were executed, and 11 were tortured to death. According to British and American confidential reports, the earlier executions were given much gory publicity, but the later ones were kept secret because of public revulsion. Because of the victims' bravado and uncompromising defiance, they faced death denouncing the regime and praising their party. Because of the reluctance of the firing squads to shoot straight, and most important of all, because of the widespread suspicion that the United States had pressured the Shah into such un-Persian behavior. Unquote. Now, I don't know exactly what Abrahamian means there with the phrase un-Persian behavior. It could be that when the Iranians were in control of their own politics, rather than under occupation or the heel of a monarchical dictator, as in the Mossadegh gears, they didn't tend to torture each other to death or to televise show trials. Or it could be referring back to the Persian Empire's reputation for relative lenience, which is something Dan Carlin got into in the Kings of Kings series. Or, and whether or not this is what Abrahamian meant, I think it gets to the heart of things, that the Iranians at this point weren't subject to the same kinds of red terrors and fear of communism as the Americans or the British. The Tuda had been a popular party for decades, and Iran, like much of the developing world, saw things to admire in the political and economic systems of both superpowers. 
So it must have been more than distasteful for Iranians in the mid-1950s to see their Shah, so recently installed by what even then most people recognized as the foreign coup, so eagerly and bloodthirstily playing the running dog for the anti-communist United States, and imitating McCarthy in that country. But while the immediate aspect of the post-coup was that of a purge, the Shah and Zahedi couldn't totally exile or alienate the existing parliamentary establishment. Many of Mossadegh's former allies were popular, and more than that, they were well-trained and needed to help run the country. So while parts of every non-monarchist political party were forced underground, other folks, like Ali Amini, Mossadegh's old finance minister, stayed on in government after 1953. Amini in particular ended up negotiating the transition of the National Iranian Oil Company, the one that they had created after they nationalized the AIOC, from an independent national entity to the shared property of an international consortium. An interesting bit at this point is that the Shah at the outset does not suddenly become an all-powerful or all-feared dictator, no matter how much tacit support he had from the U.S. He was, along with Zahedi, at the top of a rightward-leaning coalition of landlords, nobles, the tip-top of the bourgeoisie, Tehran mobsters, some of the clergy, and the entrepreneurial class. The coup had established that it would be the Shah who reigned in Iran, but not how or to what degree. The Cambridge history says that it would be a decade before the Majlis, that is the Iranian parliament, and the cabinet were entirely made up of the Shah's cronies. But in the meantime, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, which is, remember the name of the Shah, consolidated. He kept Zahedi on as prime minister only until 1955. The man was too competent for his own good, and when it began to look like he might rival the monarch for power, the Shah packed him off to exile in Switzerland. As he was about to leave, General Zahedi reportedly said, quote, Poor Dr. Mossadegh was right after all, unquote. The Shah had a lot of leeway to appoint men to government and bureaucratic positions, and he used that power to ease his creatures into the parliament and the agencies, squeezing out anyone with an independent streak. He also had the ability to elevate or devastate men with his landed and industrial wealth, and he made use of it for the same purpose. And, with the help of one General Bakhtiar, whose name you don't really need to know, presided over the creation of the first authoritarian police state in the Middle East, nurturing a growing group of secret security agencies, the most famous of which would later become known as Sabak. And, as the Shahs had since his father's time, Mohammad Reza controlled the army directly, and lavished massive spending on its men and equipment. From Abrahamian's A History of Modern Iran, quote, in the period from 1954 to 1977, the military budget grew 12-fold, and its share of the annual budget went from 24 to 35 percent, from $60 million in 1954 to $5.5 billion in 1973, and further to $7.3 billion in 1977. By that year, Iran had the fifth largest standing army in the world, and despite that, much or most of that money went into ultra-sophisticated weaponry. Arms dealers joked that the Shah devoured their manuals in much the same way as other men read Playboy, unquote. If you're wondering who's selling him all that weaponry, of course, the answer is us. And to some much smaller extent, the British and the French. What's interesting about arms sales, and is something that I learned from some New York Review of Books articles that I'm going to get to much later on, is that some of the NATO countries began allowing and then encouraging arms exports, because after their demilitarizations following the Second World War, they didn't have enough domestic demand to support a native arms industry. And if they wanted that secure supply of guns and tanks and planes, the argument goes, 
they then had to sell them to the third world. Of course, the other way that you could support a domestic arms industry is by direct government subsidy. But then you'd have taxpayers all too aware of the true costs of an armaments industry. Which is to say, if I'm not being clear enough, that we in the West use those little brush fire wars to subsidize our national arms manufacturers. Anyway, while France and some of the other European NATO countries seem to have gone about the arms selling process very deliberately, and that doesn't, I don't think, make it any better, the US has pretty much always spewed guns everywhere, and not always as part of any kind of cohesive strategy. In Iran's case, though, it's because we very much liked the Shah. I have therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived, and that is the most important topic on earth, peace. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war, not the peace of the grave, or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. In the actual running of government, the Shah did what he could to undermine the Majlis, the parliament, increasing the number of deputies and lowering the requirements for a quorum. He could pack the chamber with sycophants, and if just a few of them showed up, allow them to make law. Two veteran courtiers divided the parliament into the National Party and the People's Party, which I mentioned last episode came to be known as the Yes and Yes Sir parties. Now, those parties are going to change names like five times between now and 1976, and I'm just, I'm not going to tell you what the new names are because they keep being known as the yes and yes sir parties, and it's it's just not important for what I'm talking about. So if you know a lot about Iranian history and you're pissed at me because I'm not mentioning the names, that's, that's why. Anyway, after Zahedi went into exile, the head of one of those parties, Manuchir Iqbal, don't remember that name, stayed on as prime minister until 1960, not because of any particular set of skills, but because he described himself as the Shah's household servant. The Shah didn't only want to control his country, managing its politics subtly or quietly. He needed the prime minister and the parliament to be total non-entities, because Reza Pahlavi wanted not just to be, but to be seen as the only conduit of power in Iran. The Shah was a big fan of the French absolutist monarch Louis XIV and his famous dictum, I am the state. But while you could reasonably argue that Louis made himself the state because it was the level of control he needed to improve his country, for the Shah, a program of government was secondary to the real goal, which was absolute authority, total control, and the perceived glory that went with them. Mohammad Reza's father, in his mind, had had that kind of power, and he, the son, had been robbed of it. So in sum, the Shah wanted to be the kind of monarch that hasn't existed for centuries, and to wield the kind of power that only dictators wield today. For sure, he had the military more or less in hand, and the Majlis wasn't likely to give him trouble, especially as he exercised his patronage powers. But we've seen, the world over, that people are generally loath to give up democracy and freedoms of expression once they've had them. So how did the Shah get the regime's small but growing urban and middle classes to go along with his regressive politics? He did it in exactly the same way that the Chinese and others have done it 
He didn't give them participation, but he did give them stability. Worth more than you might think, given that Iranian history had been a disaster almost since the Constitutional Revolution at the turn of the century, and definitely since the abdication of Reza Shah, the Shah's father, and the occupation by the British during the Second World War. And he gave them economic growth. From the Cambridge History of Iran, quote, Urban, middle-class Iranians were willing to forgo constitutional rights for a place in the new Iran of the developers and the land speculators. And, more especially, in Tehran, that concrete jungle of high-rise office blocks and apartment buildings, hemmed in by architecturally eclectic villas and supposedly American-style suburban residences with their imported European furnishings. Evidence of the new order was manifested in construction projects, new apartment blocks, motorways, international hotels, department stores and boutiques, and in the emerging new skyline which conveyed the illusion of a thoroughly westernized capital. The insistence on emulating the West is easy to deride, but it can be understood as, in part, a mechanism for escaping from the reality of repression. Political energies were being channeled into desires for material improvement and higher standards of living." Now, I think that whole passage is fascinating, but maybe not for the reasons you might imagine. Firstly, it shouldn't surprise anyone that newly middle-class Tehranians would trade a little political freedom for safety and wealth. We're very familiar with the first half of that equation, from the effective clampdown and free expression in the McCarthy era to the Patriot Act and all the attendant repressive measures of the War on Terror. But even more interesting is the substitution of consumption for political participation. Our best modern example here has been China, where poll after poll has shown that most people for the last few decades couldn't have cared less that they weren't running their own country, as long as their economy kept growing at 10% a year. But what struck me about that passage, when it describes the quote-unquote supposedly western new skyline, is what seems like an unavoidable comparison with what I'd call the supposedly western new skyline in Manhattan right now. What I mean is that nowadays, it seems like New York's emulating Dubai more than the other way around, and that it should be very familiar to us in the U.S. that some people would trade upward mobility and oligarchic pseudo-capitalism for democracy, since that very trade-off has been the greatest conflict of U.S. politics for decades now. It might not come out as black and white here at home, but this is in some ways the question that our politics asks of us. The Republican Party would prefer that black people and Hispanics and immigrants of all kinds not just didn't, but couldn't vote. And their recent reticence to show their faces at town halls and other public events makes unavoidable what should already have been obvious. The trade-off they've been offering is that they, the Republicans, along with their donors, will run the country. And you, by some curious process, will get rich, either through Reaganite trickle-down economics or through the current wave of quote-unquote job creation by way of tax cuts for quote-unquote job creators. It's a totally fallacious deal, and the election, if not the administration of Donald Trump, is evidence that some folks might be finally catching on that the you-get-rich part of it isn't going to happen. Now, they elected Donald Trump, so it's pretty clear that the final reckoning is a ways off, but still. For me, though, it's impossible to read those paragraphs from the Cambridge history and not to think about Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump enjoying nepotistic pride of place in the White House, while their monstrosity of a high-rise goes up at 666 Fifth Avenue in New York. The Shah at this point is operating under the same deal. He'll be free to act like a dictator only as long as he provides prosperity. At this point and for the rest of his reign, that prosperity comes by way of oil revenues, which are paid to the Shah through the NIOC, the National Iranian Oil Company Consortium, and which skyrocket as operations expanded, and as, later in the 1970s, 
OPEC began exercising greater control over the price of crude oil. Iran went from $34 million in revenues in 1955 to $358 million in 1961 to $437 million in 1963. Despite those massive increases, the Shah was at no point able to pay his own bills because his military spending kept pace with oil revenues from $83 million in 53 to $183 million in 63. He covered the differences in those budgets with our help, receiving half a billion dollars worth of military aid from the United States in the decade after the coup. According to Abrahamian, the Shah, quote, could not hide the harsh reality that Iran after 1953 found itself chained to the chariot wheels of the West. On a long list of issues, the Shah openly sided with the first world not only against the second, but also against the non-aligned third world. He took Iran into the Baghdad Pact, later named the Central Treaty Organization, the U.S.'s attempt to set up another NATO in the Middle East. He had his ever-expanding armed forces trained by the United States and the U.K., he permitted the U.S. to place monitoring networks in the country. He gave de facto recognition to Israel and appeared to side with it against the Palestinians. He sold oil to South Africa at a time when much of the Third World was calling for a boycott of the apartheid regime. And to top it all, in the mid-1970s, when the drain of the Vietnam War led America to the Nixon Doctrine, he eagerly volunteered to be America's policeman in the Persian Gulf and even beyond. For Iranian nationalists, this reconfirmed deep-seated convictions that the Shah was a Western stooge, unquote. The other major bit of support that the U.S. tendered to the Shah's regime in the 1950s was to help him develop and consolidate his internal security apparatus. That is, the secret police made sure that if, despite the influx of oil revenues, somebody wanted to express anti-monarchical feeling, even in private, they'd have more than a passing chance of ending up in a torture chamber. powerful Shah of Iran in Washington on a three-day visit begins his stay as a devout Muslim by removing his shoes and touring the beautiful Washington Mosque. Your Majesties, I speak on behalf of all of my fellow Americans in welcoming you to the United States. The interest of both of us is the same, to maintain our freedom, to maintain our peace and to provide uh, a better life for our people. That is the purpose of your visit, uh, Your Majesty, as to how we can jointly concert that effort. Mr. President, today the name of America has a magic meaning for the most distant communities of the world. I bring with me the heartfelt greetings of my countrymen to your people, with the expression of their sincerest feelings of friendship. And I extend to you, Mr. President, my warm wishes for the happiness and prosperity of your great and noble nation. The organization that the Shah set up, together with the help of the FBI and the CIA, was the National Security and Information Agency, which came to be known by its ominous Farsi acronym, SAVAK. The Americans even brought in the Israeli intelligence agency, Mossad, to consult, and by 1957, they had SAVAK up and running. In the 1960s, the agency eventually came to employ 5,000 full-time operatives, whose only objective was to rule out dissent, and it extended its reach to include an untold, literally untold, number of informants. 
Some sources I've read have estimated that at some points, one in every 450 Iranians was actively providing information to Zavak. And other sources have estimated that at some point in time, one in every two Iranians provided some information to the agency. But as in every surveillance state, the ability to condemn one's neighbors and enemies with impunity resulted in a lot of participation. And the body of informers was probably as massive as it was fluid. A journalist named Francis Fitzgerald wrote of Savak in 1974 that, quote, It had agents in the lobby of every hotel, in every government department, and in every university classroom. In the provinces, Savak runs a political intelligence gathering service, and abroad it keeps a check on every Iranian student. Educated Iranians cannot trust anyone beyond a close circle of friends, and for them, the effect is the same as if everyone else belonged. Savak intensifies this fear by giving no account of its activities. People disappear in Iran, and their disappearances go unrecorded. The Shah says his government has no political prisoners. Communists, he explains, are not political offenders, but common criminals. Amnesty International estimates that there are about 20,000 of them, unquote. So if at any time you wonder how all these police states grow up abroad, or how it is that they got so good at what they do, well, look no further than the U.S. of A. And Savak could have a chilling effect on more than Iranian literature or political expression. Reza Barahani, an Iranian poet and author who wrote a series of books and articles about the regime in the 70s and 80s, has an interesting take here in the middle of a passage about his own imprisonment. Quote, There were days when seven prisoners of diverse backgrounds were pushed into my cell. We got ourselves accustomed to sleeping while standing. Some had dysentery because of bad food and fear. Some could not stand because of sore feet or burned backs or pulled out toenails. We breathed into each other's faces. All of us had been kidnapped by the Savak. None of us had seen any warrants. Nobody outside knew where we were. We didn't know ourselves where we were because we had all been brought to the prison blindfolded. The seven of us could easily have run a school or a supermarket or a factory. Imagine 10,000 educated men and women in prison while 75% of the whole nation is illiterate. Imagine hundreds of doctors in prison when every 50 villages in the country have only one doctor. Imagine roads awaiting construction while engineers are rotting in jails. The number and extent of my government's crimes against its people have no end, unquote. So I know that was long, but I'm about to lay a much longer quote on you. And the reason is that I've had people, as I've mentioned in earlier episodes, complain that I don't address the why of the United States' involvement in all these horrible little goings-on. And I gave it my best shot in two of the Guatemala episodes, and I might break those sections out into their own shorts. But as I was going through the New York Review of Books articles from Berahaney and on the arms trade, I found one which lays out pretty succinctly the view that the U.S. had of itself in all this. Very long quote now, from an article called Impossible Dreams by a guy named Ronald Steele, which was published on the 12th of September 1968, nine months out from the Tet Offensive, six months out from the assassination of Martin Luther King, and three from the death of Bobby Kennedy. A pretty good moment to take a sober reckoning of what was going on. Quote, Since the beginning of the Cold War, nearly a quarter century ago, there has been happy agreement about the methods and goals of American foreign policy. We were the torchbearers of liberty, the watchmen on the walls of world freedom, in John F. Kennedy's overwrought phrase. We launched NATO and the Marshall Plan to stop the aggression-bent Soviets from engulfing Western Europe. We fought in Korea and Vietnam to preserve the rule of law and hold the line against what Vice President Hubert Humphrey last year referred to as militant, aggressive Asian communism, with its headquarters in Peking, China. Although we frequently had to revert to arms in the defense of freedom, our ambitions were noble and disinterested. 
What America has done, and what America is doing now around the world, President Johnson declared shortly after he began bombing North Vietnam, draws from deep and flowing springs of moral duty, and let none underestimate the depth of flow of those wellsprings of American purpose. Few bothered to investigate those deep and flowing springs of moral duty, because the assumptions of American foreign policy were taken for granted. The Cold War against communism became its own justification, and all the acts carried out in its name explained in the noble rhetoric of American idealism. We were not doing anything so base as protecting our investments when we financed an invasion against the government of Guatemala and overthrew Mossadegh in Iran. We were not playing power politics when we saved the royalist government in Greece and helped put down the Stanleyville secessionists in the Congo. Nor were we concerned with such nasty concepts as spheres of influence when we launched the Bay of Pigs operation, sent the Marines into Santo Domingo, and plunged headfirst into the Vietnamese Civil War. Some might consider such acts as the subversion of foreign governments, the dispatch of military forces to preserve friendly regimes, and the direct intervention in the internal affairs of other nations, the use of trade and aid as instruments of political warfare, and a dedication to the prevention and extermination of radical-minded revolutions as typical acts of an imperial power. Some, like Richard Barnett in his brilliantly argued and devastatingly detailed study, Intervention and Revolution, and remember that the New York Review of Books actually does base most of its articles around book reviews, would argue that, quote, from the Truman Doctrine on, the suppression of insurgent movements has remained a principal goal of U.S. foreign policy, unquote. Unquote from that quote, not from this long quote, which is still going. Nothing, however, could be farther from the mind of the average American or from the vocabulary of the government official. Everyone knows, or ought to know, that American policy is motivated by self-sacrifice. Empire is a nasty European word. Our diplomacy is neither venal nor self-seeking. It is, to use the jargon dear to the hearts of what Barnett calls the national security managers, responsible. Let us listen, for example, to George Ball, renowned for his dove-like murmurings on Vietnam, and currently the American representative to the United Nations. The United States, he declared when he was Under Secretary of State, and U.S. planes were pounding North Vietnam, is engaged in, quote, something new and unique in world history, a role of world responsibility divorced from territorial or narrow national interests, unquote. Again, just that short quote, not this long one. How satisfying to serve a government engaged in such a noble task, as Mr. Ball did during his six years as Chief Deputy to Dean Rusk. How inspiring to know what Washington says is good for us is automatically good for everyone else. Charlie Wilsonism, it seems, has not really faded away. It has simply gone global, with the U.S. playing the paternalistic role of General Motors. There is no conflict between American national interests, as defined in Washington, and those of other countries, since what we want for them is what they want, or ought to want, for themselves. We have occasionally dissipated our resources by failing to think ahead properly, but, as George Ball writes, with the self-assurance that is the hallmark of an important national security manager, there is no historical precedent for the generosity of our policy, unquote, and unquote. So Ronald Steele gives a pretty compelling and pretty damning view of the official American perspective, at least as it was presented to the world and to the American public. How the officials and statesmen of our government justified it to themselves is another question entirely. I think one simple but incomplete answer is that they drank the Kool-Aid themselves and believed themselves morally justified in everything they were doing. That's possible, but I don't think too likely, and even if you were a fervent anti-communist, there has to be something else cooking in your head when you order the death of a regime or of a few hundred thousand people. And that comes down, I think, to something else.
There's a concept in my old line of study, the study of international relations called realpolitik, and, or real politic or whatever, and we usually take that to mean either a term used to define political decisions divorced from morality, or as a kind of style of policymaking or action that you've intentionally divorced from morality. Interestingly, that term gets its first kind of use way back in the time of Louis XIV or thereabouts. I've mentioned Louis in this episode in relation to the Shah in that Louis was maybe the first absolutist monarch in Europe, the first monarch who said that all power rested in the person of the king, and that the king, properly, was the embodiment of the state, rather than bargaining and positioning with nobles, the aristocracy, and the church. The king by right commanded everyone and everything within his realm, which in Christian papal Europe was a novel idea, or at least novel in practice. And the way that realpolitik came into play with Louis is that in early Christian conflicts between the Roman Church and heretical sects, or later between Christian Europe and the Muslims, and finally between Catholic Europe and Protestant Europe, nations and kingdoms had made wars and alliances not necessarily in terms of political expedience, but rather religious affiliation. It might have made more sense, in today's terms, for a Catholic state to team up with a Protestant one to make war on another Catholic state, but it just wasn't done. We use realpolitik in referring to Louis XIV because of the first time he and his advisor, Cardinal Richelieu, said, blow that, we're going to arrange our foreign policy according to our own interests, not those of the Pope. That is, that we're going to act according to a politics of political reality rather than religion. So that's the term, or at least the concept as it was originally conceived. Nowadays, especially for conservative students and practitioners of political science and international relations, Realpolitik has come to be seen as this kind of laudable, steely-eyed resolve. This kind of refusal to let yourself be distracted by the petty, small-scale morality that governs our day-to-day lives as you steer the ship of state. These are the guys that love and revere Kissinger, this kind of mad German scientist of world politics, who could coolly move pieces around on the board, selling weapons to the Shah here and fomenting dirty little wars in Latin America there, actions that us peons might see as immoral or even reprehensible, but which were ostensibly serving that higher purpose, the interests of the state. But there's something I want to make very clear in this episode, and something that I hope is becoming clear over the course of the show. It's also something that I've danced around before and touched on more concretely in the blog, and that is that I think international politics and international action have moral weight and consequences, and that for one reason or another tend to play out in a way that we would have thought of in a more religious age as moral. So getting to the point now, I think every part of our modern conception of realpolitik is bull. I've read a lot, a lot of history, and here in the show, as I get into, deeply into, bits of history and American foreign policy that I'd never studied before, it continues to hold true that when you do wrong, especially when you knowingly do wrong, abroad, on behalf of the state, it comes back to bite the state right in the ass. I tried to get at this in the series about Guatemala, but it might not have been entirely clear, especially because the major victims of Operation Success were the Guatemalans themselves. Here in Iran, the relationship is much clearer, because while I'd bet pretty much nobody listening had or has a great idea of what life's like in Guatemala or what the country's doing now, everybody knows about Iran, knows that to some extent it's ideologically opposed to the United States and regarded, in our own eyes, as one of our major enemies in the world. And what I want to highlight in the course of this series about Iran is that, one, it didn't have to be this way, that, two, it's entirely our fault that it turned out this way, and, three, that it got this way because of clearly immoral actions taken in the name of realpolitik, whether or not that was explicitly stated at the time. 
Now, there might be a camp that would argue that there's no standard for morality, or no ruler by which we can gauge activity in the international sphere. That, internationally speaking, we're still in a Hobbesian state of nature. And from the days when the Persians stamped out the Assyrians to today, it's every state for itself. But I think that view is as bunk as it would be if you stuck 10 people, two Catholics, two Buddhists, two Jews, two Muslims, and two humanists on a boat in international waters, and said that because there's no higher temporal authority, anything goes, from theft on up to murder. There may not be any policing force in that situation, but each one of those people subscribes to some internal morality. In our own international case, the U.S. has a declaration that lays out at the very beginning the equality of all men, with no mention of citizenship. Likewise, the U.S. is a signatory to any number of declarations of rights and treaties of international law. Whatever you might think of international institutions, or even of the Constitution and the Declaration themselves, the U.S. does in fact have a well-defined moral and philosophical framework, to which it allegedly subscribes, and against which its actions abroad can be judged. So, coming back around. In our last episode, the Eisenhower administration, reversing decades of American policy in Iran, unseated, through clandestine action, the sitting elected power in the country. Argue all you want that we were defending our oil interests or whatever else, but by our own standards, written out in ink on paper a hundred times over, what we did was wrong, period, full stop. And what I think is clear, and what I want to convey to you, is that regardless of the other forces in Iranian history, you can track the Shah's brutality, the defeat of moderate Muslim elements, and the eventual reign of Ayatollah Khomeini, and the revolutionary regime's undying enmity for the United States, back to that night in August 1953. We did wrong, and it bit us in the ass, and it has and will bite us in the ass every single time we try to cast morality aside and act in the supposed interests of the state, which is, remember, supposed to be of us. And yet the same revolutionary beliefs for which our forebears fought are still at issue around the globe. The belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. We dare not forget today that we are the heirs of that first revolution. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century, tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage, and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed and to which we are committed today at home and around the world. Anyway, getting back to Iran, things remained pretty much stable through the end of the 1950s, thanks in large part to the efforts of Savak in extinguishing dissent. But an interesting thing happens in the run-up to the Majlis elections in the summer of 1960. The Shah sets up two new parties and opens up electioneering to some extent. Why? I mean, in the first place, since his position in 1960 was much more secure than in 1953, 
Why have elections at all? And then why make them any freer than he had to? The answer to both those questions is, for the most part, the United States. Like I said in the episodes about the military dictatorships in Guatemala, they kept holding sham elections because the United States likes for its puppets to appear democratic. The U.S. was, in its arms deals and military training arrangements with Iran, encouraging the Shah to democratize. And Mohammed Reza, say both Cambridge History and Abrahamian, was listening to John Kennedy's rhetoric and feeling the pressure. What the Shah had not yet but would later grasp is that if he'd ignored that pressure, made no moves, not even illusory ones, toward democracy, the U.S. would have continued to fund and arm him anyway, as it did in the 1960s and as it did in Guatemala from the 50s through the 80s. But it's also possible that the Shah didn't feel himself quite strong enough to throw the Majlis entirely away yet, or at least the elections away yet. And the other thing to note is that party politics, even if you're trying to be a dictator, aren't worthless. You need capable people to help you run the country, and parties help to sort those people into and then to the top of the Majlis, the parliament. Plus, even if both of your parties are designed to agree with you, having some level of controlled debate is handy when you're trying to judge the opinion of your stakeholders among the entrepreneurs, the landholders, the bazaaris, and the bourgeoisie, and in hashing out the minutiae of new laws and programs. Plus, after three years of beating his people into submission with the heavy hand of Savak, letting them vote on the marginal differences between those two parties was a bone that he could throw them in terms of political participation. So I'm not going to give you the names of these new parties because you don't need to know them, and you'd be just fine continuing to think of them as the yes and yes sir. What is important is that all of the dormant remnants of the National Front and the Tuda and all the other elements of past Iranian politics came out of silence, or out of hiding, to campaign in these elections. And with Savak on a leash, it was obvious to everyone in the country that these opposition parties had a huge amount of support. People thought that maybe the reign of terror was over, and that they'd be getting back to constitutional government now that the Shah had done his job and stabilized things, and they were joyfully joining the political process. But when the returns came in, the Majlis had been neatly divided between the Shah's two parties, with all of his picked candidates, and with none of the independents or alternates supported by this groundswell of opposition. So the country went bananas, and there was enough of a public outcry, which again can only be heard because the Shah's chained up Savak for the moment, that the Shah says they'll have a redo. He blames the election rigging on his prime minister, as if everyone in the country didn't know that he'd personally directed the charade. He appoints a new prime minister named Jafar Sharif, don't remember that, who holds another set of elections in the fall, and the Shah knows that Jack Kennedy is going to be president now, since he was elected in November of that same year and takes office in January 1961. So the Majlis sits in the new year, and while the Shah didn't throw elections wide open, independents claimed 32 seats compared to 69 and 64 for the yes and yes sir parties. So not fair, but they had some. From the Cambridge history, quote, Had the Shah felt free to act, he probably would have swiftly silenced the disruptive debate on the central issues of Iranian political life, which had developed since the fiasco of the 1960 elections. He had, however, to consider his American friends. Thus, there could be no return to the autocratic style of the Zahedi period. The choice seemed to lie between a National Front administration or one headed by Dr. Ali Amini, unquote. Yeah, the National Front was legal enough to head a government again. I don't know when that happened, when it got uh, unillegalized, since a lot of the sources mention it being outlawed in 1957, but nobody so far has mentioned when it got unoutlawed. But I imagine it was during this political opening in 1960. 
Anyway, only the National Front commands the loyalty or the sympathy of enough of the independents and independent-leaning members of the two parties to form a cabinet and a government. The Shah won't suffer that, since it was Mossadegh's National Front that originally, in his eyes, stripped him of power. The only other competent, powerful politician he's got left, after filling the Majlis with his cronies and letting National Fronters get elected, is Dr. Ali Amini, who was a protege of Mossadegh's sort of predecessor, a man named Kavam who came up in the earlier episodes. Amini also served as Mossadegh's Minister of Finance, so the Shah goes with Amini, who's able to form a cabinet, but is crucially not in office because of an electoral mandate, and that will hurt him in the future. And as Amini gets ready to take office in May 1961, both he and the Shah are thinking about land reform. Now, Amini's thinking about it because it's what Iran, like most of the developing world, desperately needs at this point. But the Shah is thinking about it, as the Cambridge History points out, because the Kennedy administration saw land reform worldwide as a sine qua non, or a necessary condition for acceptable progress in American puppet states. Premier Ali Amini is ruling pro-Western Iran by decree after the Shah gave him full powers. The new premier took office after four teachers were shot while demonstrating for more pay, and he promises changes that will reopen closed schools and satisfy teachers' demands. Iran, rich in oil resources, is suffering from complex economic ills. The Shah has led land reforms by parceling out sections of his estates, a lead he wants others to follow. Alright, so now we want to talk about the shape of the political opposition at this moment, but before I do that, because people have been telling me I ought to do it more, I want to give you a really quick recap. So, uh, the coup happens in 1953, the Shah comes back to Iran, nothing much really happens in all of the 1950s except that the Shah is consolidating his position, receiving money from the United States and from oil revenues, creates Savak, and then there's this political opening in the 60s, and suddenly the opposition can be out in the open again. Alright, so the political opposition, which was pretty much always opposed to the Shah, but differed depending on the moment on Amini, was made up of several factions and parties that would shape the Iranian situation leading up to revolution 16 years later. The National Front, while it sprang back up in the wake of the Shah's relaxation of politics, was crippled by the eight years of persecution it had suffered since the coup in 53. Many of its original leaders had been exiled, imprisoned, tortured, or killed by agents of the security state. And after the Shah allowed it back into politics, the coalition tried to color within the lines laid out by that monarch, afraid of a repeat of the 1950s, and, according to Cambridge, quote, waited in the vain hope that, as Iran's problems deepened, the palace would summon them, unquote, to take up the reins again. That did not happen. The Tuda continued its underground existence after the brutal repression in the wake of 53, but the regime didn't let the communists' diminished power and reach stop its efforts to root them out. Along with disappearances, kidnappings, and torture, the regime hammered, through propaganda, on themes of national betrayal, with the Tuda supposedly working with Russia to undermine Iran, on ethnic nationalism, linking the Tuda with Armenians, Jews, and Azerbaijani emigres, and likewise, the Shah's agents pointed to the Tuda's supposed atheism to drive a wedge between it and the clergy and the religious opposition. Zavak also disseminated rumors implicating the Tuda in the coup against Mossadegh, which was nonsensical, but given that here in Trump's America we've got a lot of people who can fervently hold two diametrically opposed viewpoints in their heads, not necessarily ineffective. For all that it was crippled and still illegal, the Tuda participated in the Iranian scene in this period, 
maintaining an active emigre presence in Europe. By the way, emigres are just immigrants who are kind of, I don't know, if they're living in France or whatever. Um, holding congresses, developing policy, and forging links with other parties in Iran. And while the National Front and to some extent the Tuta were languishing in fear and inaction, the more hopeful and enthusiastic members of the opposition went their own way and founded this new thing called the Liberation Movement of Iran. A cleric named Mahmoud Talakani and Mehdi Barzigan, who was the French-trained engineer that Mossadegh originally put in charge of the National Iranian Oil Company, and try to hold on to those last names even if you lose the first ones, were the two original members of this new party that I'm not in any way going to try to pronounce in Farsi. It's just, for us, the liberation movement. We'll get much more into this topic later, but the liberation movement was based on a radical and particularly Islamic form of socialism. The Shah's collusion with Western capitalism had discredited that set of world ideologies with the Iranian left, and both China and the USSR's collaboration with the Shah through the 1950s likewise made sure that most Iranian radicals didn't turn towards Moscow or Beijing either. What they developed instead was a peculiarly Iranian Shiite socialism that had a hell of a lot to do with the Catholic liberation theology movements that were taking root on the other side of the world in Latin America, and in Guatemala specifically. And you know, if you've listened to my Guatemala shows, that I really like liberation theology, and I am just as excited about this cool new development in Islam. So, Barzagan was the politician of the duo, and Talakani was the theologian-philosopher. From one of Abrahamian's books, Talakani wrote two important works. Quote, In the first, he argued that Shiism was inherently against autocracy and for democracy. In the second, entitled Islam and Property, he argued that socialism and religion were compatible because God had created the world for mankind and had had no intention of dividing humanity into exploiting and exploited classes. Talakani had two interrelated missions in life, to show that Islam had answers for modern problems and therefore was relevant to the contemporary world, and to bridge the deep gulf separating devout believers from secular reformers, traditional bazaaris from modern educated professionals, conservative anti-regime clerics from forward-looking radical intellectuals, and the religious establishment in Qum from the patriotic intelligentsia of the National Front. Unquote. I think that these guys, and another dude who's going to come along a little bit later named Shariati or Shariat Madari, are onto something really cool. And it's something that, in the same way that we tend to think of Catholic priests in Latin America more as oppressors than the liberators of liberation theology, a strain of liberal and liberationist Islam that we're pretty much totally unfamiliar with in the West, which I think is super cool. At the head of the ulama, the clergy, and the more conservative Islam that we pretend to know a little bit better here in the United States, was the Ayatollah Ruola Khomeini, who is, for now, on the same side as Talakani and the rest of the opposition. He's 61 at this point. He teaches in a madrasa in the Iranian holy city of Qum, and until this period of political opening, hasn't spoken much in public. Through 61 and 62, though, he begins to give speeches and radio addresses and, cleverly, according to Abrahamian, he stays out of the opposition's hair. Much of the ulama was attacking land reform and greater rights for women, but Khomeini, built up his stature and avoided making enemies on the left by focusing not on conservative topics, but on the Shah's corruption, his election rigging, his violation of the constitution, the way he ignored the economic situation of the lower classes, and the way he encouraged garbza degi, which is a term that means something like West sickness, the cultural degradation that comes from unreserved emulation of the West. 
It was a term that the Iranian left had invented recently, and it was a big part of the conversation that was going on at the time. All of these things resonated with the public at large, and they started to build up what we'd call in the horrible language of today, Khomeini's brand. So this is the opposition when Ali Amini takes office, a diverse group of interests, none of which really support him, and two none of which he really belongs. He's the guy that the Shah picked, rather than one of the men that they elected, running a coalition of other men that they elected. So he's got a kind of a tall order here. Now, before I get briefly into Amini's time as Prime Minister, and believe me, I could spend like 10 times as many pages on this as I'm going to, I want to explain why I'm talking about it in the first place. Like, if we know that Khomeini's going to end up running the country after the revolution in 79, why even bother dealing with this little period at the beginning of the 1960s? Why not just focus on the Shah, or even better, gloss over these two decades and get straight to the juicy stuff at the end of the 70s? Well, just like I pointed out in the second short show, we end up thinking simplistically about other people's history, even if we know a good deal about it. I think I knew way more than the average American about Iran when I started this series, and I definitely knew way more than the average American about Iran when I started these post-coup episodes, but my impression of what went on was basically... The U.S. restores the Shah, and then the Islamic Revolution happens. And that made sense, to me at least, because in my largely negative understanding of Iran that I'd gotten through what's effectively U.S. propaganda, it seemed natural to me that these scary, Farsi-speaking brown people on the other side of the world would naturally turn to the most reactionary form of their religion outside of Saudi Arabia. Like, obviously, you defeat their democracy once, and then they go full Alabama snake handler. But it's not true. It's not that way. It's overwhelmingly untrue. Khomeini and the ultra-conservative ulama were a minority in Iran, and Khomeini intentionally hid his ultra-conservatism right up until the revolution. There were so many other interesting, and to us in the West, more understandable and sympathetic movements in the country. And while it'll take us a while to figure out why not they but Khomeini came out on top in 79, I want you to see that the Iranians are like us. If Donald Trump turned the U.S. into a bungling dictatorship tomorrow, we'd do what the Iranians did. We'd form parties and opposition groups and rehash out our politics. And we would have a much larger portion of the population in favor of the ultra-conservative clergy, clamoring for a hands-made-tail kind of revolution here in the United States than they did in Iran. Because our fundamentalist conservative Christian contingent is much larger here in the United States than their fundamentalist Islamic one was in Iran. More than probably anything else I ever have or ever will talk about on this show, the Iranian Revolution in 1979 is a there-but-for-the-grace-of-God-go-we kind of situation. And I want, by going briefly through the events of the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, to make that very clear to you. General, how would you counsel the American people at this time? In the face of such a terrible thing, I'm sure, the... Uh, entire citizenry of the nation will join as one man in expressing their not only their grief but their indignation at this act and will stand faithfully behind the government. The American nation is a people of great common sense and they are not going to be stampeded or bewildered. Anyway, so Ali Amini. Amini cuts a middle course when he forms his cabinet, keeping on some of the Shah's lackeys, but also picking young, 
brilliant men from the National Front with big plans. Coming into office, according to Cambridge, quote, Amini then announced a far-reaching 15-point program. Proposed reforms included the breakup of great estates, reduced government spending, new tax laws with improved enforcement, a balance between imports and exports, curbs on the import of luxury goods, greater decentralization of the bureaucracy, and a degree of local autonomy, reduced inflation, improved education, and a strong anti-corruption measures, unquote. It was, in short, a lot. And Iranians used to corrupt, Shah-serving politicians had little hope that Amini would be able to change anything, let alone the integrity of the Iranian ruling class. However, Amini meant what he said and made his first series of arrests and his first set of powerful enemies in the army, arresting high-ranking officers and senior officials. But while Amini moved forward in good faith on all his initiatives, the centerpiece of his government was the land reform program, just as it had been in Guatemala, except that this time a native executive was taking it on with the tacit approval rather than disapproval of the United States. I'm not going to get deep into the details of the land reform plan, because I will get more thorough than you probably like with a later one, but just trust that this was, to all appearances, a well-designed plan. The state would purchase land from large landholders and sell or lease it to peasants and sharecroppers with the aim of creating a class of small, independent landholders in the villages. The program ran into resistance immediately and predictably from the large landholding classes, who controlled the vast majority of arable territory in the country. It's telling that the cutoff for land purchasing under the reform was that the state would only take property from anyone who owned more than one entire village. This was a country that was rocketing towards modernity in the cities and still literally feudal in the countryside. Where Amini might not have expected to be attacked from was the left. The National Front and its allies, understandably incensed that it and they had been deprived of the prime ministership that they won in the election in late 1960, hammered Amini for being too slow with his reforms, for not holding another set of elections, for not restoring the constitutional laws, and for, this is real, instituting reforms as important and necessary as the land reform without a mandate. That is, they were pissed that he was doing it instead of them, basically. Now, I think that they were in the wrong, but I don't think that I or we have much room to judge the Iranian left here. Liberals will always be their own worst enemies. And here in the U.S., we're just over 100 days out from the inauguration, and we liberals are already tearing each other apart over stuff that does not matter. I know I participated for way too long in an argument on Metafilter about whether or not Obama should have taken that money for his Wall Street speech. So Amini was building up enmity with pretty much everyone, and he was marked out for special opprobium by the Shah, who hated any figure who outshined the monarchy. So, from Cambridge again, quote, misrepresented either as a prime minister turned autocrat in disregard of the constitution, because he was ruling without a mandate, or as the Shah's lackey, this man of vision found himself increasingly hamstrung. Even so, he might have survived much longer, but for his very success in initiating land reform and for his determination to prune the military budget, unquote. Amini held on for just over a year, and he only made it that long, my sources seem to think, because the Shah was afraid of what the Americans would do if he got rid of him. Amini had served as the Iranian ambassador to Washington, and he had friends in the United States, but the Shah was just beginning to realize what had been true all along, that he could do pretty much anything in his country, and as long as he remained anti-communist, the U.S. wouldn't lift a finger. So when Amini, in his crusade against corruption and government wastefulness, tried to rein in the cash that the Shah was blowing on his military, Mohammad Reza had had enough and pushed back. 
Amini, seeing himself in an impossible position, stuck between the left and the court with no support, resigned before he could wake up dead. The Shah was happy to be rid of Amini without having to remove him himself, and seeing the popularity of his ideas, if not his administration, cooked up a new vision for the monarchy in Iran. He would now become the great reformer, leading his people in revolution. And that would come in 1963. Iran is a constitutional monarchy, and the man who guides the destiny of her 20 million people is Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. As commander-in-chief of Iran's 200,000-man armed forces, the Shah has long recognized the need for strength if his country is to progress. Inspecting the armored center near Tehran, the Shah gets a first-hand view of United States military assistance. Hardware, vehicles, and spare parts Training and know-how come largely from the Americans. Before we get on to the set of reforms that would become known as the Shah's White Revolution, why would Mohammad Reza want or need to be seen as a reformer in the first place? Because his position, like all dictators' positions, was fragile. It might sound unintuitive or counterintuitive, but dictatorship is one of the, or the most fragile forms of rule. Our impression is the opposite, given the way that we always describe them as iron-fisted strongmen, but they're actually in perpetual danger of losing their place. When a new president comes into power in the U.S., he replaces all the higher-ups and heads of agencies that the last president appointed, because he needs the government to be his. Why do those people, those very powerful people, go when he tells them to go? Because they, and more importantly everyone around them, believe in the system of government in the United States. Their authority comes from this system, and even if they were the most popular EPA director in history, their employees wouldn't follow them if they tried to go rogue. There are very well-established systems in place that prevent that kind of thing. Dictatorships, on the other hand, by their nature erode the authority of established systems and institutions. And while the upside of that for a strong dictator is that they can do pretty much whatever they want, The downside is that every time they want to do something, they have to convince people to do it based on their own personal authority, not that of the system or their office. So, let's simplify that. If government is like an old car, like an old mechanical car, like a Volkswagen Beetle, democratic government, between election cycles, works pretty much like the car works. If you're the president, you tell the steering wheel to turn, And while it can think about whether or not to, the strength of the system means that it will. And when it tells the steering column to turn, the same system enforces that choice, down the line like the mechanical links in a real car. But when a dictator like the Shah tells the wheel to turn, it's not his office or loyalty to the system of government that makes the wheel turn, but his personal authority, whether that comes from charisma or fear or physical strength. And every next link in the chain depends on the next higher link, likewise enforcing his authority by charisma or fear or physical strength. So in the same way that a teacher who has charisma or is willing to send kids down to the principal's office will be able to keep a classroom quiet and attentive, and a substitute who's afraid to punish the kids will get conversation in paper airplanes, the Shah at all times has to keep the other power centers in his country either loyal or afraid. This is why the Shah had to get rid of Amini. It's not only that he was in love with the idea of a powerful military and that he treated his men like toy soldiers, but that he needed the support of the army to rule. 
If he had allowed Amini to make his budget cuts, he'd suddenly have a whole basket of generals and colonels scheming about how to get that money back. And unlike in a democratic system, where removing the president would be unthinkable, in a system where nobody respects the constitution or the office of the Shah, a cabal of officers would be a real threat. The Shah created Savak not because he hated his people and wanted to torture them, but because, like all dictators, he was afraid of them. Winning the loyalty of the entire population, especially during the time in the 50s when he was still consolidating his control, would have been hard. Winning the loyalty of a relatively small number of well-paid terror police was easy, and they in turn would keep the population too afraid to take to the streets the way they did under Mossadegh. But by 1963, the Shah had sewn up his support in the Majlis by getting rid of everyone who was either competent or had a following of their own, and Amini was the last of those men. He had the army and the secret police well in hand, and I think what he was going for when he debuted his white revolution in January 1963 was an attempt to win his people over, this time through good government instead of through fear or savak. He also had one other constituency to please, which was the international community, primarily the United States and the World Bank, which were funding his regime, and transforming himself into the glorious savior rather than the brutal dictator monarch was his answer to pleasing both sets of people. The White Revolution was a very grand name for a six-point plan for reform that the Shah rolled out in late 1962. The name was a conscious callback to the aristocratic, anti-communist whites who fought the Russian Civil War against the Red Bolshevik Revolution in the teens and 20s. And while the purpose of the plan was to set up the Shah as a reformer and to placate both a people who were desperate for change and a landholding class that was desperate for that change to favor them, the content was pulled pretty much entirely from Ali Amini's reforms of the previous 18 months. Of the six points, the first was land reform. The Shah would continue with Amini's program, but with a different formula for confiscation of land to keep the landlords happy. The second point was a program to sell off government-owned factories and businesses to raise funds for land purchases under the first point. The third was profit-sharing in industry, meaning that labor's earnings would be partly tied to the profits of the business. Next was the nationalization of Iran's forests, presumably to keep them from being exploited and destroyed by industry. Fifth was a change to the electoral laws that enfranchised women. And sixth was a literacy corps modeled on the Cuban Revolution's great literacy campaign, which sent teachers and college students out into the countryside, and which, in Cuba, took the country from being in the mid-60s for reading to over 96% literacy in a period of three years. To inaugurate the new plan, the Shah set up a nationwide plebiscite in January 1963. Since the thing was government-sponsored, the White Revolution, of course, received an overwhelming yes vote. But the seeds of opposition were already sending up shoots. As it had with Amini, the National Front opposed and boycotted the voting, saying that while reform was not a bad thing, it should come from the people and the Majlis, and that it should not be used as a support for the Shah's authoritarian government. The National Front led several high-profile protests against the White Revolution, and as a result, Savak arrested the rest of its senior leadership, and the party pretty much ceased to be a force in Iran, giving way to the more religious and more socialist liberation movement, led by those two guys I mentioned earlier, Talakani and Barzagan. Khomeini's apolitical longtime teacher also died right around here, and he began to speak out more and more against the Shah and the White Revolution. And while either the Shah or the security forces didn't feel it was yet possible or advisable to go after Khomeini himself, 
they launched an attack on his madrasa, sending in paratroopers and killing several students. The Shah at this point tried to characterize the entire conservative clergy as black reactionaries fighting against progress and afraid, because of the land reform, of losing their traditionally held properties. He called them parasites, and in early June, Khomeini replied by radio, saying, quote, Now, these students of the religious sciences who spend the best and most active part of their lives in these narrow cells, and whose monthly income is a pittance, are they parasites? And those to whom one source of income alone brings millions of dollars are not parasites? Are the ulama parasites? People like thee, and here he describes the financial plight of a famous cleric in terms of Iranian money. The gist is that he died poor. And those who have filled foreign banks with the wealth produced by the toil of our poverty-stricken people, who have erected towering palaces but still will not leave the people in peace, wishing to fill their own pockets and those of Israel with our resources, are they not parasites? Let the world judge. Let the nation judge who the parasites are." Abrahamian notes that through pretty much the whole reign of the Shah, Khomeini avoids topics based on conservative Islam. Some of the few other outspoken clerics had opposed the White Revolution, just as they had opposed the previous plan by Amini, because of women's suffrage, for example. But Khomeini stayed away from that stuff, even though he was as conservative as the rest of them. The one thing that might have flown out at you from that statement was his mention of Israel. And it might strike you as anti-Semitic, but I want to be clear at this point that it was not. Israel was very new in the 60s. The plight of the displaced Palestinians still very fresh and very present in the minds of the Muslim countries of the Middle East. And the Shah was the only Muslim leader who stood with the United States and Israel against the homeless and persecuted Palestinian refugee population. This was a particularly Muslim call to arms against American imperialism, and if this podcast gets long enough, we'll eventually get into the Israelis' conduct in the Lebanese war and their pretty unconscionable massacres of Lebanese and Palestinian civilians there. I don't want to get into this right now, but when the people in Donald Trump's camp say Jews or Zionism or Israel, or even, to a certain extent, New York, what they mean is Jews, and what they're doing is dog-whistling to anti-Semites. When Muslim leaders like Khomeini use different terms, like Jews or Zionism or Israel, they're generally actually referring to different things. So when they say Jews, yeah, watch out, because something unjust is probably about to go down. But if they say Israel or Zionism, there's a fair chance they're making a political and not a religious argument. And it's handy to keep that in mind, especially when we're talking about the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And if you don't know what Zionism is, you need to look that up. Not necessarily on the internet, because you'll run into a lot of Donald Trump's hopeless racists, but like in an encyclopedia. David Frumkin's A Peace to End All Peace is a pretty good book to start with, too. So, another quick recap. From 1953, when the coup happens, up to 1960, the country is pretty much stable and the Shah is consolidating his position with the help of the security state and Savak, his new secret police. From 1960 to 1963, there's this weird little political opening that is more or less encouraged by the Shah's impression of John F. Kennedy's rhetoric. During that political opening, a prime minister named Ali Amini conducts what's probably the last real attempt at democratic government and real reform in Iran. Amini resigns because the Shah won't let him pursue his program, and the Shah, seeing the program's popularity, decides to launch his own called the White Revolution. Despite an overwhelming yes vote in a plebiscite in January 1963, the revolution is not popular in Iran. At the beginning of July, during the Muharram holiday, Ayatollah Khomeini makes this big speech on radio, which fires up the whole country. So, 
following Khomeini's speech, and I apologize, I misspoke there, it was in June, and supported by a society-wide alliance of workers, small-time bizarres, the more political clergy, and the liberal religious, like the folks from the liberation movement, protesters took to the streets in June 1963 to protest, and sometimes to riot all across the country. I haven't seen any succinct program to explain exactly why they were protesting, but I think it's fair to imagine that the answer was everything. Like Occupy Wall Street a few years ago, I think they were all pissed enough to band together without even having to try to come up with a consensus as to what they were protesting about. You had in the first place the wealth disparity. You had Savak and the military suppressing political parties and the clergy again after the brief period of permissiveness. You had the Shah's White Revolution, which for pro-Amini folks had hijacked an actual plan of reforms and turned it into an ineffectual propaganda campaign. While for the anti-Amini folks, it was just another continuation of non-constitutional government imposed on the people. Despite the oil revenues and apparent progress towards industrialization, the three days of, as they're called in Spanish, manifestations proved that there was stuff worth protesting in Iran. And the Shah's reaction proved, too, that it would take something more than protest to make change in that country. The riots and disturbances didn't turn into a general strike or spread to the ranks of the military. After the three days, the Shah put the disruptions down by force, imprisoning and killing undoubtedly hundreds and possibly or probably thousands. I can't get you good figures on that, because the regime wasn't cozy with international observers, and amnesty at this point was only two years old, though their reports from the 1970s would be comprehensive. Suffice to say, though, that the Shah's experiment with a pseudo-democratic parliamentary monarchy from 1960 ended in June 1963, and there would be no more political openings in his Iran, not until the end. Today, Iran is busy. A new reality rises from the dreams and aspirations of her people. A new world is being built upon the hopes of centuries. Modern, progressive, sometimes radical changes are transforming the face of the nation and shaping an environment where national independence individual freedom and social justice prevail. What's maybe interesting is that this whole mess, the opening and then its repression, did not take place in a vacuum. The entire decade of the 1960s was chock full of these political openings and repressions across the globe. Those of you who have heard my series on Guatemala know that the government there opened up politically right at the end of the 60s and that Catholic liberation theology was springing up there at the same time that Talakani and others were beginning to develop their parallel Islamic version. Students in Mexico in the 1960s tried to move their regime to the left, thinking that it would be a welcome kind of protest in a country ruled by a revolutionary party. But by 1968, that revolutionary party had had enough, and government troops killed hundreds of students putting down a protest in a place called Tlateloco, just kilometers from and 10 days out from the Mexico City Olympics. The May Rising in Paris by students, socialists, communists, and activists against the war in Algeria shut down almost the whole of France. But in the following June, Charles de Gaulle's conservative government swept parliamentary elections and then used the police to beat the students and workers back to their classrooms and factories. In the United States, the permissiveness of the government towards the counterculture ended during the riots outside the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1968, and in the deaths of four students at Kent State in 1970. The 1960s were a wild time pretty much everywhere, and while it's a subject for another time, the conservative backlash that started worldwide in the 1970s and in Iran in the 1960s 
is, I think, still with us and has become so much a part of us that I think liberals from the 60s wouldn't even recognize us as liberals now. Likewise, if you've seen any of those photos of police pepper-spraying already handcuffed Occupy Wall Streeters, or of cops in military gear and armored personnel carriers facing off against black protesters, that's nothing new. It's been going on since Chicago in 68 and Detroit in 1967, when the governor of Michigan sent in the National Guard and Johnson sent in the Airborne, and our own military occupied the city, killing half a hundred people, shooting more than a thousand others, and blowing up a quarter of the city with tanks. The forces of oppression, even here in the U.S., never went away. We on the left had just forgotten how to mount any kind of real disruptive protest until after the financial collapse in 2008. Anyway, after the June uprising in 1963, the only guy speaking out publicly in Iran was Khomeini. The liberation movement guys were either in exile or quietly publishing books and pamphlets that could be read either way, but Khomeini, confident that the regime wouldn't touch him, or at least not too much, kept speaking in public and on the radio. Khomeini had good reason to expect lenient treatment, because even after his June declaration, which helped to lead to the riots, the Shah's government did imprison him, but only for three months. The Shah sent him to jail again later in 1963 for protesting the elections of that year, and by the time he was out of that prison stay, in mid-1964, he was famous across the country and widely and pretty fairly regarded as the only man brave enough to speak up against the regime. In the latter half of 1964, Khomeini got the opportunity that would cement his popularity even among Iran's secular population for the next decade and a half. The Shah was about to receive another $200 million loan from the United States. For those that disliked American interference in Iran or the freedom American money gave the Shah to grow his security forces, that was enough of a problem. But the loan was also tied to a concession, very similar to the capitulations whose unpopularity helped to bring down the Qajar Shahs at the beginning of the century. If the Shah accepted the loan, he would also have to accept extending diplomatic immunity to all American military and technical personnel in the country. In October of 1964, Khomeini said this to a crowd from the steps of his home. Quote, If some American servant, some American's cook, assassinates your marja, or highest religious leader, in the middle of the bazaar, or runs over him, the Iranian police do not have the right to apprehend him. Iranian courts do not have the right to judge him. The dossier must be sent to America, so that our masters there can decide what is to be done. They have reduced the Iranian people to a level lower than that of an American dog. If someone runs over a dog belonging to an American, he will be prosecuted. Even if the Shah himself were to run over a dog belonging to an American, he would be prosecuted. But if an American cook runs over the Shah, the head of state, no one will have the right to interfere with him. Why? Because they wanted a loan, and America demanded this in return. Iran has sold itself to obtain these dollars. The government has sold our independence, reduced us to the level of a colony, and made the Muslim nation of Iran appear more backward than savages in the eyes of the world." Unquote. Now why am I spending so much time on Khomeini so many years before the revolution in 79? Because I will eventually have to show you how things shake out between him and the liberals like Talakani, and I want you to be able to grasp why he was so popular, even to agree with him. I agree with him here and to understand why he and his movement were so anti-American. It's not because they hated our freedoms, it's because of all this stuff. So the Shah arrested Khomeini and deported him to Turkey. From there, the Ayatollah moved to Najaf, the Shiite holy city just across the border in Iraq, 
and from there he continued to write pamphlets, make radio addresses, and later on, to record sermons on cassette tapes to be distributed in Iran. There was another side to Khomeini's opposition to the United States that was also dear to a lot of Iranians, and that was opposition not to its politics, but to its culture. There's an Iranian term that I mentioned a little while ago that I'm not going to try to pronounce again, but that translates to West Sickness, or West Toxification, that a guy whose name I'm not going to make you remember came up with around this time. And it meant something like an uncritical and uninformed adoption of Western culture and customs. It's easy to blow that off in the terms our own politicians have given us, as a kind of conservative Islamic reaction to the freedoms we enjoy, but it's more than that, and I've gotten a pretty good look at it here in Mexico over the last four years. There are all sorts of little things that play into this. The traditional Mexican soft drink, for example, from the countryside to the cities, is the agua fresca, the fresh water, which is fruit or tamarind or hibiscus or whatever you have on hand blended into water. It's healthy and it's usually pretty delicious, but it's also been supplanted in popularity pretty much everywhere, first by Coca-Cola and now by soda generally. And that changeover is in no small part responsible for Mexico's epidemic of obesity and diabetes. The preponderance of US television and cinema here have made sure that colonial attitudes about skin color are still alive and well, and it's the reason why in a country that's majority mestizo, you'll only ever see white people on TV or in magazines. In Iran in the 1960s, that same kind of thing was happening. The members of what had been a largely rural, traditional society were flocking to the cities to try to emulate Western consumerism. Now I'm not trying to make the case here or to convince you that all of Western capitalist materialist culture is worse than traditional Mexican or Iranian society or culture, but to try to persuade you that not everything about the US is better than everything in those cultures, and that people in Iran or Mexico might have a legitimate beef with the way that American ways of living, spearheaded by American loans and American military contractors, were destabilizing the previously extant society in their countries. The Shah's white revolution helped to fuel the growth of and resentment against West sickness. From Cambridge, quote, Foreigners, mainly Americans, were commissioned to submit plans for rapid modernization. Advisors and experts crowded into the country. Their presence drove up rents and servants' wages, and their salaries provoked envy. By the 1970s, they were numbered in their thousands. Imported consumer goods also poured in, to the pecuniary advantage of customs personnel and retailers. The latter sold them at prices many times their value in their countries of origin. Fortunes were being made, especially in imports, urban real estate, and the construction industry. Everyone who could afford it, and many who could not, aspired to live in suburban affluence." Unquote. Despite all that, and despite Khomeini's protests from the Iraqi desert, the Shah's Iran stayed pretty stable for the 14 or 15 years after the June uprising in 1963. The prime minister he appointed in 65, Amir Abbas Huveyda, held on in that office until 1977. And although the same radical Islamic group that had assassinated several politicians in the 1950s, the Fedayeen Islam, the devotees of Islam, murdered the prime minister who preceded Huveyda and tried to kill the Shah afterwards, there was no other opposition violence to speak of until the mid-1970s. Well, folks, it looks like that's going to be just about the end of this episode of SFD. I thought I'd get a little bit further along, time-wise, before I had to call it, but the good news is that although I haven't started recording the next episode yet, 
I've got the script here, in my hand, and we should be able to get all the way up to when the forces that'll produce the revolution start getting into gear in just one more hour. In the meantime, as always, you can find show notes, pictures, and a bibliography on the website, safefordemocracy.com. Our casts are going to be going up on Medium and, I'm thinking, YouTube, just to make sure that anybody who wants to can listen and share exactly how they prefer. Aside from that, though, I want you to know that I really like what I'm doing here. Between these long historical episodes, the shorter weekly essays, and the collaborations like the one I just did with Robert Morris last Wednesday. But more than enjoying myself, I think I'm doing good work with SFD. But in the most literal sense, I need your help to keep doing it. I need you to share these shows with people. And I need you to reach out to me on Facebook or on the site to make that contact and to let me know what I could be doing better. I'm good at history, and I'm improving at audio editing and managing the website, but I am bad at publicity, and I need you for that. So help me out, man. Alright, we're leaving Iran for now in the mid-60s, but by the end of the next episode, we'll be moving into the last years of the 1970s, wading through the jail cells of Savak, learning about the new Iranian theologians, and preparing, along with the Ayatollah, for revolution. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.